Good morning, church. It's good to praise his name together, isn't it? Praise his name. Hey, have you, have you ever been uh, somewhere where you didn't quite know what to expect? Some of you are feeling that feeling right now, maybe. If this is your first time at Grace Fellowship, you're like, yeah. Anytime you visit a new church, it is like that. You don't know exactly what to expect. Um, I've been a part of this church for the last 34 years. So when I think of a worship service, this is what I think of, right? And yet when I'm on vacation and we visit other churches at different places around the country and stuff like that, I always have this sense of, man, I wonder what it's going to be like. Am I going, how do they dress, right? What, what kind of music is it? is it? Is it formal? Is it informal? Is it a place where I'm not going to know if I'm supposed to kneel or stand or get in the aisle or what I'm supposed to do? Um, it's, it's uncomfortable you wonder if you're going to be singled out. You don't know what's going to be expected of you. Same thing if you, if you visit a foreign country. There's different cultural norms. There's different types of dress. I always think, my goodness, is there going to be any food there that I'm willing to eat, right? Um, what are the customs? It, it, you got to know what the laws are as you go to different countries. In Singapore... It is illegal to chew gum or even bring it into the country. And in Singapore, they cane you, by the way. That's good to know, right? <laughs> Maybe leave the gum at home if you're going to Singapore. In Germany, it is illegal to run out of gas on the Autobahn, right? You know that super highway everybody drives fast? The, the thinking, and I'm not sure I can argue with this, the thinking is, if you're responsible enough to drive a car, you should be responsible enough to keep gas in it. And so if you run out of gas, it's a crime. And if you run out of gas and then you grab a gas can and walk along the side of the highway, that's a second crime. You're not allowed to walk on the highway either. So it's good to know if you're going to Germany. Uh, in Poland, you better not wear a Winnie the Pooh t-shirt. Because uh, Winnie the Pooh is illegal in Poland in public. So he breaks their obscenity laws because he wears no pants. <laughs> you think I'm making that up? That is absolutely true. So these are things that's important to know. You're going somewhere. You're not used to it. You don't know your way. It's a different place. It's a different set of rules, a different kingdom. And you need to know it is tough to go somewhere when you have no idea what's expected of you or how things are going to work. You could end up in jail or worse. So it pays to learn a little bit about the kingdom that you're going to be in. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about kingdom living in the kingdom of God. What does it look like for us as followers of Christ to be a part of his kingdom? It's very different than the kingdoms of this world, and we've been trying to establish that. But when you come into a relationship with Jesus, you become a part of his kingdom. And we need to understand what life is like in his kingdom if we're going to actually thrive in our new life in Christ. To really understand this idea, I think you need to realize that by using the word kingdom, we're not talking about a geographical area with borders. When, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, in most cases, there's a few cases where it's speaking of heaven, 
But in most cases, when it's talking about the kingdom of God, it's talking about that which the king rules, right? His kingdom. So when we talk about the kingdom of God in this sense, it's not heaven per se, it's the people of God and the people who follow God and what that means to live under his rule. So if Jesus is your savior, then he is also your Lord and your king. Those things come as a package deal. You don't just get to sort of buy the fire insurance to stay out of hell by, by praying a prayer or going to a crusade and raising your hand or going down on the field or something like that and going, whew, that was close. I may, I've managed to miss hell. Now I can just get back to life the way that I meant. No, we live in his kingdom. We live under his rulership. He becomes our Lord. And some people say, well, he's my savior, but not really my Lord, to which I say, then he is not your savior either. Because the scripture describes him as savior and Lord. And it describes the fact that if we are in Christ, we are made new, we're given new birth, and we enter into a different kingdom. So Christ is the king of Christians. And we are part of his kingdom. And it doesn't matter where you live or, or what human authority you may be under. And by the way, the scripture is very clear that God does place us under human authority. There, there's um, authority in, in uh, countries. There's authority, legal authority in cities and counties. There's uh, authority in the workplace. There's authority in families. God places us under authority, and he calls us to stay under that authority. However, that only goes so far as that authority does not require that we come out from under the authority of Christ. We're always under the authority of Christ first. In the book of Acts, you may remember this, uh, Peter and John are, are preaching and healing, and uh, the religious leaders who are in authority there don't like that because they're doing it in the name of Jesus, and that's a threat to the Pharisees. So they bring them in and put them on trial, and they warn them sternly. They say, we're going to let you go this time, but do not ever preach in that name again. Do not ever heal in that name again. Just one problem. Jesus told them, go and preach in my name. Go and heal in my name. And therefore they said, you tell us whether we should obey man or God, but for us, we are going to obey God. And they walked out of that meeting and started preaching again. Because he's the authority right? So, so don't misunderstand me. Those of us with a little rebellion in us, be careful. I'm not saying that we just blow off human authority and treat it like it's nothing. I'm saying that even human authority answers to Christ, right? He's the king. So we got to keep that in mind. And things in God's kingdom are dramatically different than they are in the kingdoms of this world. Now, if you were going to visit, go back to the illustration, if you were going to visit a new church and you wanted to know what to expect, how would you find out? Website. You go to a website. You know what? Almost no one ever visits a church anymore until they have visited the church's website. If a church has a terrible website, they're in trouble because almost everybody checks out the website first. How else might you look into it? 
Yeah, exactly. Ask somebody. If you have a friend who goes to that church or a friend who has been to that church, you can ask them, hey, what time does it start? How should I dress? What is the expectation? What do they do? And you can get that information, right? So we know how to do that. Um, if you're going to travel in a different country and you want to learn more about the customs and the laws and the cultural norms and all of that, how would you find out? You Google it, right? That's how you find out everything. Just Google it. Um, you, would, you would Google it. You'd find a travel site, right? Or maybe you would talk to someone from that country or someone who's been to that country, and you would find out. Well, if you want to understand more about God's kingdom, one of the best places to start is a place called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're new to the Bible and not as familiar with it, let me tell you, you've probably heard the phrase Sermon on the Mount before, and you may be going, okay, what is that? It's in the book of Matthew. If you got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, now Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So when you get all the way through, most of the books are in the Old Testament, and you get to Matthew, which is the beginning of the New Testament. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have one sermon that was preached by Jesus that has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at that for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to be there again today, so I encourage you to turn there. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with a section that has come to be known as the Beatitudes, because Jesus is trying to preach a sermon here that will give us a picture of what life is like like in the kingdom of God? What is life like under the authority of Christ? What is life like when he has given us new life and we're now walking in the spirit instead of the flesh? What does that look like? And he gives us this beginning in uh, the beginning of chapter five. Let me just read it to you. You can follow along. Chapter five, beginning in verse one, book of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we looked at some of these individual beatitudes last week. Uh, in fact, we got through four of them, which is kind of a record for me in one sermon. Um, don't get your hopes up that we're going to get through four today. But um, we, we got through some of these and we began to look at this picture of what does it look like in the kingdom. But it's important to realize as we see this list of the Beatitudes that this is not a list of individual separate characteristics that you might find in the life of a Christian. The Beatitudes are one package deal. They all come together, okay? It's similar to the fruit of the Spirit, which is described in Galatians 6. Let's use that as an example. So leave a finger there in Matthew and go over to Galatians. 
Uh, it's to the right. It goes Galatians and then Ephesians and Philippians. So if you get to Ephesians or Philippians, you went too far. Go to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to pick it up as he's wrapping up the story in Galatians. I said 6. It's chapter 5. I think it probably says 6 on the notes too. But it's chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It's very interesting because if you've been around church much, if you were in Sunday school as a kid, maybe a VBS or something covered the fruit of the Spirit, and you've gone through these things one at a time, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and you talk about what all those things are. But it's really interesting when you read it, it's clear in English as it is in Greek, it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, it says the fruit of the Spirit. So it gives us singular fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is this whole bunch of stuff, which is, by the way, not an exhaustive list of everything that happens in the life of a person who has the Holy Spirit or who, who submits to the Holy Spirit, it is just a picture Basically, he's saying if you're living your life under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, these are the kinds of things you can expect. Don't think of a bowl of fruit with an apple and an orange and a peach and a banana in it. Think of a smoothie, right? You put all that stuff in the blender and don't forget the ice cream and... Because you don't want it to be that good for you. And then you blend it, right? And you get some sort of pink and orange looking drink. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is like. It's a spiritual smoothie, okay? So it all comes together. It's exactly the same way when he talks about the Beatitudes. I don't want you to go, okay, as I look at this picture of the Beatitudes back in Matthew 5, I look at this picture, it gives me this list of things and I kind of like number two and number five and number six. So that's what I'm going to focus on. No, he's describing a picture of the people who have let Christ be their king. These are the things that God does as he begins to shape your heart, as he begins to change your character, as he begins to rub off the, the rough corners and the rough spots in your life. You begin to be someone who is poor in spirit. You begin to be someone who mourns over your sin. You begin to be more gentle. You begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on the list goes. These are things that are characteristic of people whose lives are blessed. Last week we looked at the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And today we're going to add another ingredient to the smoothie. Um, and let's look at verse 7 and see what it is. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay. Let's say that it's your birthday and someone gives you a 50-pound bag of M&Ms. A 50-pound bag of M&Ms. Now, you love M&Ms, but who can eat 50 pounds of M&Ms? I probably could eat 50 pounds. <laughs> you don't have to raise your head. Some of us could do it easily. 
But you, you got 50 pounds of M&Ms and you're like, what am I going to do with all of these things? And so at work, you get a big old like punch bowl and you pour a bunch of them in and set it on your desk, right? And people walk by and one of your coworkers comes by and goes, hey, can I have one of those M&Ms? What are you likely to say? (laughs) Terry's going to say no. (laughs) Don't ever ask Terry for M&Ms. What are you going to say? You're going to say, don't just have one, have a box full, right? Bring a bag over. Let me fill it up for you. I'll be happy to share as many as you want, right? Why? Because you have an abundance of them and they cost you nothing. So it's, you're glad to give them away, right? Now let's say next day, same employee walks by and says, hey, thanks for the M&M yesterday. And I was thinking, can I have your car? All of a sudden, you've got a different attitude, right? Why? You go, no, no, I can't give you my car because I only have one and it costs me half a year's salary, right? What, what costs you more you have less of is much, much harder to give away than what costs you little to nothing and you have more of it, right? I want us to keep that in mind as we think about what Jesus says here about mercy, When you have an abundance of something that costs you nothing, it's easy to be generous with it. If you're a Christian, how much mercy have you received from God? A lot. More than a 50-pound bag, right? And how much did all of that mercy from God cost you? Nothing. It's incredibly valuable. It's incredibly expensive, but the price has already been paid, praise Jesus, right? So you have this overabundance of mercy, and it costs you nothing. There's an interesting dynamic in this verse as it talks about the merciful. Um, there's There's a principle in Scripture that we call the already and the not yet. The scripture talks about what is already true in our lives and what we're still looking forward to because one day we're going to shed this mortal coil and be with him, right? And so there's the already and the not yet. Go back to this passage in chapter 5 of Matthew and let's look again at verse 7 where it says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Interesting. It doesn't say blessed are the merciful for they have received mercy, And it it almost implies that somehow it was the fact that you were merciful that earned you the mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But that's not really it. See, if you're a Christian, you and I have already received mercy. Somebody say amen. Amen. We've already received mercy at no cost. By all rights... God would have been justified if he had cast me into hell the first time I ever sinned. And, and the second time. And the third time I sinned. All three times that I have sinned, he could have cast me into hell. Right? At, at four with that comment. Um, we've already received that mercy. But he hasn't yet fully disperse the mercy that we shall receive. 
Because in another sense, the mercy that God shows will come at the time of final judgment. That's when I will receive my mercy in the fullest sense. That's when I will be bathed in that mercy. That's when I will live completely in the awareness of that mercy. Last week, we looked at some verses in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to go back over there. If you found Galatians, it's right after Galatians. Go to Ephesians. We're going to look at this one more time today. In Ephesians chapter 2, he addresses this issue. We see it illustrated once more. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He describes us in our previous state. He describes us in our current state, the already, and he describes us in the state we will one day be in, the not yet. Okay, here it is. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were, that's previous, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's speaking to Christians here. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, uh, we too all formerly lived. In the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If you're a Christian, that describes how you were before you came to Christ. And then it goes on. But God, there's those great words again. But God, being rich in mercy, you could circle that word mercy, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. That's the already, right? He's saying if you're a Christian, you have been saved by grace. You were dead, but now you have been made alive. So this is what it means when... um, When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You must be born spiritually into Christ's kingdom. And when you're born into Christ's kingdom, you become a new creation, right? That's the already. But it continues on. Look at verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the not yet. We haven't experienced that yet. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the not yet. That that he has raised us up, we will be seated in the heavenly places with Christ. So that he can show by pouring out this mercy and grace, his great love for us. And we we can worship him for this. So we get the... Once upon a time, the already and the not yet. And, and go to the back of your Bible, find the book of James. It's a small book. If you get to Hebrews, which is a big book, it's right after Hebrews. Go to James chapter 2. And I just want to glance real quick at this one verse. James chapter 2, beginning in, in verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs 
over judgment. He's talking about the already and the not yet. He's saying that if you're in Christ, you have received this mercy to be brought into the kingdom of God, not punished for your sins, but instead welcomed into the family of God. And he says that that makes you someone who shows mercy. If you're not a person who shows mercy, then there's a very legitimate question as to whether you've actually received that mercy. But once you receive that mercy, he says you will be one who shows mercy and you will receive mercy in the time of judgment because praise God, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's how strong his mercy is. It's not that showing mercy somehow earns us God's mercy. It's that those who freely received God's mercy already are characterized by giving mercy to others. God pours mercy not just into my life, but through my life. So the way I like to think of this is you know, you, you might have a 50-gallon drum that you pour water into. You could fill it up, and it will hold 50 gallons. And if you leave it sitting there long enough, it will stagnate. God has not called us to be a 50-gallon drum to hold his mercy. He has called us to be a garden hose through whom his mercy flows. When the mercy flows into us, it transforms us and moves on to other people. God extends mercy to others through those who have already received that mercy. One evidence of having received God's mercy is the willingness to pass that mercy on to others, who, by the way, granted, do not deserve it any more than you and I did, right? And the result of having lived in the mercy of God is that we will experience the fulfillment of that mercy when we're credited with Christ's righteousness rather than being punished for our own sinful lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But I can't really preach on mercy without touching on this awkward subject. Sadly, most of the world did not, does not associate mercy with Christians. And that, that may or may not be fair. But to the degree that that's the case, we, the body of Christ, need to take responsibility for changing that perception. Because if anything the world should perceive about Jesus, it should be mercy and grace, isn't it? And, and yet the perception of his followers is often judgmentalism. And I, and I never miss the opportunity to talk about this. Because this is the complaint that I hear constantly out there in the world from people who are saying, I'm not interested in your religion. I've tried this. I, every Christian I know is a hypocrite, blah, 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 blah. And you hear it constantly. And guys, I'm willing to admit that a whole lot of that is just people making excuses for the fact that they don't want to deal with God. Some of it is because of us. And we need to own that. And we need to do something about it. How do we change that perception of God and Christianity? By showing mercy to others. Famously, there, there's a, a convent in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, walls around the convent. And on the wall near the gate, it says this. No trespassing 
violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Signed, the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) And nobody, when they decided what to put on that sign, went, "Uh, I'm not sure that's how we want to say that. Guys, that's not going to cut it if that's how we live as those who are recipients of his mercy. Um, You have a huge bowl of M&M's. If you walked in late, you're like, what is he talking about? Well, just go back and watch it online. You have a huge bowl of M&M's and it costs you nothing. Surely you can afford to share some with others. Let's not be known for pushing rules and standards and convictions that God puts upon us upon those who do not share that mercy and do not have that relationship with Christ. We can't be known for that. Let's be known as those who will rush into the fire to save those who are in danger of burning even if they started the fire. Let's be known for that. Let's not be known for what we despise and, and, and what we boycott and where we're picketing. Let's be known as those who love those who don't deserve our love because we are those who are loved by God although we don't deserve his love. Let's not be known for inflicting punishment. Let's be known for extending grace. Now, now guys, don't, don't swing the pendulum too far. I'm not saying truth doesn't matter. I'm not saying there's no moral standards. I'm not saying there's no right and wrong. If you've ever heard me preach, you know I would never say that. Truth is absolute and it comes from the word of God. And it's, it's a standard for every generation and all times and all places and all people. It doesn't change. God gives it to us not because he wants to squash our existence, but because he wants to lift us up and allow us to live the fulfilled life. So God's word does give us moral absolutes. There's no question about that. But we as Christians are in that kingdom. We as Christians are followers of Christ. We as Christians are those who have submitted our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And I'm gonna be just honest with you. I struggle to live by those standards myself. And I have the Holy Spirit living in me. Why on earth would I expect people who don't know Jesus to be able to live by standards that I have trouble living by myself? Let's not expect those who don't know him to raise to the same standards of morality. Jesus was known by the irreligious people for his mercy. He was known for his compassion. It's fascinating to go through and read the gospels and just look at the healing accounts where Jesus heals a leper, a blind man, somebody who's deaf, raises the dead. He does this over and over again. Wherever he's going, it seems like he's on his way somewhere and he gets stopped and interrupted by somebody who needs some kind of healing. And so many times it says this, and Jesus being moved with compassion touched the leper and brought healing. Jesus moved with compassion, saw the pain of the widow, and raised her son. Jesus is constantly moved with compassion. That's who Jesus is. That's what he was known for. His kindness, his love, his forgiveness, 
as well as his personal holiness. <laughs> Interestingly enough, you don't usually see him confronting lost people about their sin. Instead, he reaches out to them. Who, who do you see him confronting about their sin? The religious leaders, the people who are known for their hypocrisy. That he addresses. He hugged children. He touched lepers. He cared for aliens and strangers. He restored, he restored sight to the blind. He extended mercy to those who didn't deserve it. People like you and me. God's will for our lives in this area is summed up in the Old Testament in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you're a Christian today, it's because you've received more mercy than you could ever spend. More mercy than you could ever understand. You don't deserve it. And it cost Jesus so much, but it cost you nothing. It was given to you as a free gift. And you will one day Receive the ultimate blessing of mercy when God gives you credit for the righteousness of Jesus rather than holding you accountable for the sin of your own life. May that mercy not just pour into your life, but may that mercy pour through your life into the lives of others. For we are ambassadors of the kingdom of mercy. It's a different kind of kingdom. And our God is a different kind of king. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we know that it's because of your mercy that we can even be here today. It's because of your amazing grace that we have been shown the truth of your word and made to have a relationship with you. It's not because of good works that we have done. It's because of the price that Jesus paid. We are walking billboards of the mercy of God. I pray, God, that people would be able to see that in us. I pray that they would experience it through us. Father, let us find that balance where we do not in any way give up truth. We don't in any way walk away from moral absolutes. But at the same time, Lord, we who have received so much mercy, make us people who can't wait to give it to others. Make us people who look for ways to give it to others. Make us people who see those who need mercy and are just honored by the privilege that we have to let your mercy flow through us into their lives. God, change the world through us. We are in your kingdom, and we want to reflect the mercy of our King. Do it in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.